Cullum, on this Memorial Day, we've decided to drop an episode from a number of years ago, which I think captured the spirit of Memorial Day, the connection we as Jews have to this incredible country uh, and the people who have fought for it and who have died and who are remembered, the ones who died in battle. Uh, this is a, a question that came up in, uh, in the mid 20th century about a Jew who wanted to be buried in a military cemetery. And it was, uh, the halacha was decided by Rabbi Shua Klavan, who was the Rav HaKoyl in Washington, D.C. The shir was presented by his uh, great-grandson, uh, Gershon Klavan, who is a very respected Talmud Chacham. I think it's worthwhile again to hear it. So please enjoy. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. A period of nearly 18 years in the mid-20th century, from late 35 until mid-1953, the center of Washington, D.C. was not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, nor was it the Capitol, but rather 476 F Street Southwest. If you look on a map and try to find it, you won't, because now it's buried by the 395 freeway. So that was the home of my great-grandparents in Washington, D.C., where he served as the Rav of the city. And it's interesting to note of the, all of the uh, issues that went into him coming to D.C. and everything that he did there and uh, what he has done on behalf of the community in D.C. And by extension, the, uh, what we have today in America is also, to an extent, because of his efforts in general. Um, he was born in a nice little city in Lithuania, as mentioned, in Yinishuk, or Yoniskis on the map, in northwest Lithuania, in, 19, sorry, in 1886. Um, we don't know that much about his, fa- his parents' families. When we say his father's family, his father of Moshe, sorry, of Binyamin, um, was a Talmud Chacham. He was the unofficial rub of the town at the time. He did not serve as a rub. His mother was a baker, and his father chopped the wood for the bakery. Um, his father also was not a well man physically, and passed away at approximately 1906, when uh, when my great grandfather was only approximately 19, 20 years old or so. And uh, we really don't know much about his family before. Uh, we know he had a sister Tilly who ended up moving to South Africa which led to a very interesting uh, scene that uh, my brother, thanks to some uh, detective work, found a picture of Hermat Seva in the cemetery in South Africa, where is Tila Basra of Moshe Halevi. As far as we are aware, our family are not Levium. We scratched our heads and wondered where did that come from. Um, the best guess that we have is that whoever made the Matseva made a mistake and that her husband, who's buried next to her, was a Levi. And therefore, whoever carved the Matseva made a mistake there. Otherwise, we all have big problems because there have been Pidjon Abens in the family since that time. <laughs> I would hate to think that we've had to deal with a brothel about Tala each time a Pidjon Aben was made. And so that's just uh, what happens when you try to research families going back 100 years or more. Um, he was the second oldest of eight children, I believe. He was uh, spotted early in his youth as being a barhachi and was sent off to the local yeshivas. His first rebbe, I believe, was mentioned in here, 
at uh, the local shul in uh, Yinishuk was uh, he ended up learning it by uh, engorged nearby with uh, the Pinska Rav of Aaron Vulcan, who is known as the, the Machaber Sefer Beis Aaron, and he was considered he considered himself a Talmud Muvak of the Beis Aaron. Um, when he was 17, he went to Knesset Beis Yitzchak in Schabatka under Reb Chaim Rabinovitz, known as Reb Chaim Telzer, and became one of the top Talmudim there, and known as, in, in the style of the time, as Shia Yanishkar, because people didn't care about last names, they only cared about where you came from. And um, when Reb Chaim left Balazh, and he was uh, one of the Bachram who was heavily instrumental in bringing Reb Baruch Ber to the yeshiva, so he was, I guess you could say, in the first round of the yeshiva because he never learned in common ed. He was still in the yeshiva in Slobodka. As we all know, there were two yeshivas in Slobodka, Knesset Beis Yisrael and Knesset Beis Yitzchak. So he was learning in Beis Yitzchak at the time <coughs> and became very close with Rav Baruch Ber. And uh, he's generally considered to be one of the Tamidim of Hakim of Rav Baruch Ber. Um, various, uh, as he's mentioned, and if those who read the introduction, in the original smicha that he gave to my great-grandfather, Baruch Ber, wrote that he is a future to be one of the Gaonim for son in Israel. So, uh, very nicely done, but then again, for those who've actually read the, or attempted to read the Ksav smicha, if you try to read it in the original, it makes you wonder how anybody was able to understand anything back then, because penmanship was a lost art back then as well. It was nice and beautiful and flowery and almost impossible to read unless you have any idea what you're reading to be beforehand. It's, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the people who work on Kiss for you. Exactly. You have to do. Again, to some, just uh, parenthetically, I spent a couple of years working on uh, Kiss for Yad, um, and basically what you have to do is detective work, you actually see you get hundreds and hundreds of pages and then you figure out how the author's letters work and how he writes and then eventually you go back. So it is painstaking work. Yeah, so, so here for example here's a picture of Yad. Anybody can make out more than a few letters in here that would be appreciated. <laughs> Somebody managed to do it, but the most legible part is the stamp on the bottom. <laughs> but that is how that is how we wrote back in the day before typewriters. Looks like I'm with dinner from early this morning. <laughs> what? What, the answer or the question? <laughs> um in 1907, he married Fagedvara Schaefer, from Lithuanian, or the daughter of one of the most Khashu families in the town of Zezhmir in Lithuania. Um, we don't know as much about that family. We know that she had at least two brothers, one of whom made it to America in the 1920s, actually, when uh, my great-grandfather and family came over from Europe. Actually, let me change that. When my great-great-grandmother came over with the rest of the family from Europe, my great-grandfather and family came on a different boat. It was her brother who came to meet them at the docks. So the uh, family connections were stronger than geography at the time. So it was an interesting story. One of her brothers was the principal of the local Tarbut school in Lithuania, which is a story for another time. Tarbut was a chain of schools throughout Poland and Lithuania, nominally secular, it was uh, abashedly Zionist and pro-Hebrew. Uh, my grandfather attended the school, 
And uh, they did a documentary about it in the late 80s, and at the time he was one of the last graduates remaining of the entire chain. And uh, he maintained his religious outlook uh, even though the school was nominally um, pro-secular, but his uncle was one of the principals, the principal of the local school. Another brother was the fire chief and supposedly was the inventor of the first horseless fire carriage in Lithuania first uh, automatic fire engine in Lithuania. And uh, one of his children, we're not sure which children, which uh, side they came from, two, two cousins survived, one in Columbus, Ohio, who came before the war. Another one actually survived in a partisan group in, in Europe and made it to Eretzisrael, where he lived out a long life at uh, Kibbutz Elon, wherever that is in Eretzisrael. My grandfather actually made in contact with them. It's a fascinating story. Just, if everybody, just want you to notice here we did put Lithuania up here on the map so you'll know what it is we're talking about. Here's Vilna here. Uh, here it, you can see from the, uh, uh, the, the Mugen Dovids and the crosses uh, how the Jewish and Christian population was uh, it, it was centered. You can see the city that, uh, that Rabbi Yeshua was from, Rabbi Sheila was from, was up here. Janoshka, Janosh, Janoshka, it's right up here. And for some reason here, it doesn't have a cross or a uh, or a, uh, a Mugendovid, but a little research that I did last night indicated by around 1900, uh, it was basically even the amount of Jews and non-Jews in the town. So it was actually, you can see here, that this is, this is, yeah. So go ahead, just want people to get right. a sense of perspective of where we are. Years, I remember that uh, my uh, great uncle came up to my grandfather in Baltimore one day to visit when we were there. My grandfather opened up a safer from a shelf and pulled out a map to show his younger brother where they had come from. Um, that was before the days where everybody walked around with a camera, so I couldn't go get a copy of the map and figure it all out on my own. So we got to thank uh, Wikipedia and all the Google Maps and everybody for at least trying to put out something so we have an idea of what happened. So he got married then. Um, after he got married, he spent approximately two years in the Kolo of Rechem in Volozhin under River Fal Shapira, from whom he also received smicha. His oldest son um, was born there, and then he received his first job as the Rav in the town of, where is it? It was um, not Zaskovich, it was, it was Zaskovich, which was near Vilna, not too far away from Vilna. Here's Vilna and here's Kovna here. This, right. is, this is where the yeshivas were, the two Slavotkas were over here. Here's right. Vilna. So Zaskovich was somewhere near Vilna. <clears throat> I don't know exactly. It was in the Vilna district, which was pretty large. And these are all uh, the equivalent of states and counties in America. So it was a pretty large area. So in Zaskovich, he was uh, well known as a very popular Rav. That all ended, of course, in World War One when uh, World War I in and of itself was a problem, but then when you throw in the Bolshevik Revolution at the end of World War I, let's just say uh, the Nazis gave the, uh, learned everything they had from the Bolsheviks and then added some more. Um, we t- we're spoiled rotten here in America because we don't understand what it's like to uh, really have a war and be a refugee, Baruch Hashem. But uh, my uh, great-great-aunt told us a story that uh, one day, it was probably in the middle of the war, there was a knock on the door one afternoon and somebody said, they're coming for you tomorrow. It was the Bolsheviks who had a policy of stamping out anybody intelligent in town, either they were educated a, or a, a tradesman, or religious leader, and they packed up and fled that night, leading to quite a few years of living as refugees 
it's uh, Baruch Hashem, we don't have to deal with these things. Nowadays, we think of refugees, you think of refugee camps sitting out in the middle of Nowheresville in Syria or Iraq, but at least you've got the UNHCR to provide supplies. That didn't exist back then. They basically lived in abandoned boxcars or working boxcars on railroad tracks and rail yards, and uh, they would have to send their oldest son, who was nine years old at the time, to try to barter on the black market to get food for them. One day the train left without him and it took him two weeks to uh, reunite with his family. That gives you an idea of what uh, life was like. And that definitely had an impact on him. I don't know exactly how, how much, but it definitely impacted his wife. Um, some of you may have heard of a country called the Soviet Union. So, uh, back in the 1950s, there was the, the Rabbinical Council of Americas organized the first and only rabbinical mission to the Soviet Union, and the entire leadership of the RCA went to go check up conditions for Judaism in the Soviet Union. That's entire except for one. The executive secretary, um, Izzy Klavan, Rabbi Yisrael Klavan, who uh, eventually became executive vice president and served in that function for a total of about 30 years, he did not go. Why? Because when he told his mother about the trip, his mother replied, over my dead body, you're going back there. They probably still have your name on a list from back in the Bolsheviks. They're probably going to throw you in jail or do something to you. There's no way you're stepping foot in there. And he listened to his mother and didn't go. So uh, it obviously kept had an impact on life then. So eventually they ended up and migrated further south and east and ended up in the city of Kursk, Based on the maps that I've seen, Kursk is southeast Russia. I don't think that's where they went because logically they they said they went further into central Russia. There might have been a different city of Kursk. And practically speaking, you wanted to get as far away from the border as possible because the further inland you went into the Soviet Union, the less crazy they were, which is not exactly saying much, but they were more concerned about the border areas. And he survived there for a few years. He helped organize the refugee community there in the city and managed to stay there until around 1921 when he managed to get his way back to Lithuania where he was appointed the rub in the town of Gilvan, Gilvoni, somewhere near uh, Kovna. And uh, the town, then Klavan is not from the town of Gilvan. Klavan comes from much earlier. To be honest, there are three different towns in Poland, Russia, Lithuania that have a name similar to uh, Klavan. So uh, Tom Glavin and I share a 33% chance of having uh, been neighbors or relatives somewhere back in Europe. Tom Glavin, the the picture. Yes, the picture. He he also comes from Gilvan. Possibly. Okay. Well, once again, there are three different towns with that name. That sound like Glavin. Yes. Glavin, Glavin, Gilvan. Yeah. Aunt kept telling me that we were always told if you're if they're Clavin from X town, then we're related. There are plenty of Clavins running around in this country who we're not related to. So uh, what can I say? Anyway, in Gilvan, he stayed there for another three years, also very successful. Um, but as we all know, life was interesting there, and basically it was a poor town, and they couldn't afford to pay him that much. So he finally listened to his mother, and in 1924 packed everybody up and emigrated to America. His mother, who basically the family followed him around because his father passed away in 1906. His older brother had already gone off to South America, to South Africa by then. So there's an entire branch of Klavanskis and Feinsingers running around in South Africa and beyond. I've met, I think, one of them over the internet over the years. 
So we've got a whole branch of distant cousins floating around there. One grandson apparently was the Israeli ambassador to the Philippines for a few years. Interesting how these things roll around. So the family basically followed him around wherever he was, and um, to an extent, because after all, my my grandfather did go to school within his mother's town for a while. And he was there and he came to America. And uh, his mother his mother was insistent that he come with the entire family all at once and not to do what was popular back then was to go on your own and raise some money and send for them to come later. And uh, he uh, never stopped thanking his mother, A, for getting him to come to America and B, for bringing everybody all at once because nobody could have foreseen. He definitely did not foresee at the time what would have happened a short 15 years later. Um, The family then moved around. Most of the family ended up in Washington, D.C., even before he did. But my great-great-grandmother ended up in the Bronx, and and actually um, in the Bronx, Mount Vernon, one of those two places, and everybody eventually scattered around, and some migrated down to D.C. Meanwhile, he was up in the Bronx for a year. Then he was called up to Burlington, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont had three shuls at the... It was a uh, prominent community in Vermont. It was called the Jerusalem of the Northeast, but uh, that's not really saying much. Apparently, there are only about 200 Jewish families there, but 200 families were still enough for three shuls. There was Gerim, there was Chaye Adam, and uh, the third shul was Ovech Sedek. So he was the Rav of Ovech Sedek. The Rav of Chaye Adam was a uh, prominent Talmud Chacham whose name I don't remember off the top of my head, but anybody who does any work on Agunas in America will be familiar with him because he was the Rav who authored the Tshuva being Matur the Agunas from the Titanic. So it's, uh, you had, uh, there was Torah in this country before World War II, you just had to dig to find it. He eventually retired the year later and my great-grandfather became the unofficial Rav of the town and not just the Shaw. From a historical perspective, Burlington, Vermont, was uh, went on the decline. Um, today, um, Avas Achim exists, but sorry, Ovet Tzedek exists as a conservative synagogue. Chaye Adam does exist. It was fascinating. About two years ago, somebody had uh, been poking around in the former shul building, which had been converted into apartments, and was doing renovations on a bathroom and found a mosaic behind the wall. It turns out that was the mosaic from the Mizrach wall around the Aron Kodesh. It's a beautiful piece of work, and they spent quite a bit of money removing that wall and the mosaic and moving it over to the other shul in town. It's about up here, just if you want to get a yeah. sense where it is. This is where... This, That's Burlington, this all the way up there. Up there right? Eight hours here, from New York by right, car. Here we are. We're over here. <laughs> We are here, so it's up here. This is Maine, and this is New Hampshire, and here's Vermont, right over here. So this is where... You're right on the edge of Lake Champlain, towards the northern part of Vermont. Um, the actual shore building of Oavate Sedic still exists. Um, so so why somebody with such a, you know, someone that you're talking about of such uh, prestige and such a resume, a rabbinical resume, so why is it that he's going to Burlington, Vermont? Because Burlington, Vermont, well, A, was a viable community. There were plenty, there were plenty, of, we tend to forget about it, but there were plenty of these smaller communities scattered throughout America that you've never heard of anymore. 
places like Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, Williamsport, Connecticut, just to name a few, that all these, I mean, Eastern Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and there were Jews scattered, and there were plenty of small communities of various sizes, and that was a, a prominent but small community. <laughs> so he was there, but also he eventually saw the handwriting on the wall and realized that it was not a good place to remain. Um, as an aside, so as mentioned, the original shul building in Burlington still remains. It has been the source of pilgrimages by family members over the years to go and take a road trip and see what's going on there. It's currently occupied by a new reconstructionist congregation. My brother went there two years ago, and uh, they were cleaning out the uh, library, and uh, they insisted on keeping the copy of the Divrei Yeshua that they had picked up over the years, but were more than willing to get rid of others for them that they, they literally would have tossed out and not put into a Geniza. He was able to salvage some of that. Good time. Yes. <laughs> um, the Chavah uh, Kadisha building is still right next door to the shul. It's in a more less urban part of Burlington. Um, Which is, again, the phenomenon you're describing. And actually, we don't even have to go up to Vermont to see it. Yeah. Always there's a couple of blocks here in this city, and we will see basically the same thing. Yeah. Where uh, Newark is an extreme example. This is more of a case of this. Only Newark and the urban areas of America suffered that fate in the late 60s. This is more of a case of most small communities in America. People married and moved away. There were no yeshivas. So they didn't why come back. Um, I had a cousin that lived there for quite a few years, but there's basically nothing left of film kite there. Um, in the mid- early <coughs> 1935, by at least he had realized that Burlington was going to be a dead end, started putting out feelers to try to get a new position. In fact, one of his letters to, um, to um, what's his name, to, uh, uh, to Blazer Silver, uh, he basically uh, started networking, or Blazer Silver sent back, by the way, there's a shul in Brooklyn, oh, Avram Mishkan Shiosef is looking for a rub, give him a call, then I could tell him I sent you. Well, he didn't end up there, but uh, he ended up in Washington, D.C. How did he end up in Washington, D.C.? So that's an interesting family story. So most of his, some of the children went up with him to Burlington, others stayed in New York. My grandfather stayed with his aunt in uh, the Bronx near White Plains Avenue where he roller skated every morning down to the Lower East Side to go to Yeshiva Spinney and Sakal Hanan and eventually up in Washington Heights. Um, the rest of the family was down in Vermont. The next brother, Uncle Harry, decided he was going to go to law school. And the family spent a lot of time figuring out where he can go to law school to be a, and still be Shomer Shabbos because one of the major problems back then was Shmir Shabbos, not just in the job market, but also in colleges as well. It was virtually impossible to be Shomer Shabbos and go to a decent university. Somehow, uh, Uncle Harry managed at University of Vermont, but after a lot of research and negotiation, he ended up at Georgetown. Uh, right, which you know, we've heard recently it was at the Senate hearings, right? As yes. Well. One of the top law schools, right? Maybe not as good as Yale, but one of the top law schools. Even back then, so we still, I still give them some Hakara Satov for going out of their way to accommodate the first Shomer Shabbos law student in Washington, D.C. So that winter... There, there maybe, there. Now there are, but back then, approximately 1935, there weren't. He was the first. So apparently the family story goes that uh, that winter 
my great-grandfather made a road trip down to see how his son was doing. Coincidentally, he fell ill and stayed a week, and while he was there, he dove into Congregation Tamatora, whose rub had just coincidentally left not too long prior to that, and they asked him to give a shear between Menchamayrim, and they liked it, and he kept going there for the week, and he kept giving shearim there, and at the end of the week, they offered him the job. So, the, uh, it's, there are no coincidences in life, so there are definitely some planned elements there in that story. And, and, and where was that? Where that was, that was in Southwest. That was in Southwest, Washington. Southwest. Southwest really did, was as the smallest of the four quadrants. There was a community in Southeast as well, but Tomatora was in Southwest. Everything was much more condensed towards the center so of the town. So that would be? Underneath the WASH in Washington. Uh-huh. So be, on our map, it would be somewhere over here. This is where. Um, actually, a bit below that. Uh, where is it Capitol Arlington? Hill? Below uh, Capitol Hill. Do that. Southwest is basically here. Uh, That's Southwest. You had a small community in Southeast. You had some area concentrated in the inner north northwest, and a bit in the inner northeast as well. But basically, a radius of no more than a mile from Capitol Hill was the Jewish community of Washington. Um, he was appointed, he, rev, uh, he was given the job as the Rav of Congregation Talmud Torah. Um, and also, the, as the president and Avbezdin Rav Akolov of the Agudas Hakihilos, his predecessor was somebody who's been mentioned in the year before, of Gedalia Silverstone, who was sent a very effusive letter at his successor's appointment, and uh, just cool. to remind people who have been in, coming here to the Jersey Giants years, he was the one whose son was involved in bootlegging, you might remember, <laughs> and he was the one who would have a lot of uh, pointed barbs against American <laughs> Jews and not respecting their rabbana, but he was, we, yeah. we talked about him. Hilly, you specifically <laughs> loved his, his shtachs, you remember, of Silverstone. So he was the Malamalkam of Silverstone. And he uh, took over... As, as the, the role of as the, the rubble in the main shul. Yeah. He was the rub of the shul of Congregation Talmud Torah. And Rav also, no, Rav Silverstone was not in Talmud Torah. No, he was just, he was the, he, was, he probably the, was, I think, the head of the he was the head of the Agudas Rabbana, but he probably had his own shul also. Mm-hmm. They couldn't support an independent chief rabbi. So um, he was the rub of, the, of uh, that shul. Um, Talmud Torah was known for its most famous congregant, was Nathan Jolson, um, the father of Al, sorry, Nathan Yolson, the father of, who was the chazan in the shul, his most son, father of Al Jolson, of the jazz singer fame. And that was Washington, D.C. And of course, the, the, the story of the jazz singer is really about a chazan's son, as you know. Yes. And <laughs> so this was. He was. Uh, you could tell what life was like religiously. <clears throat> When after he was appointed the rub and he was making plans to leave Burlington, he told his family, if I can build a mikvah and a Talmud Torah, then I know I'll be successful. So that uh, tells you something about life in the late 30s, early 30s in America. So he came down to D.C., and yes, his first job was to build a new mikvah. There was a mikvah in Southeast that was falling apart, and they were able to build a new mikvah at 14th and Perry Street, which survived as the community mikvah until the riots of 1967. Um, there's a story that goes 
that uh, one of the Lubavitcher Rabbanim in town after 67 wanted to try to take over that mikvah and rebuild it and bring it up to modern Lubavitch standards and in the process puzzled the bore and it became too expensive to even consider repairing and had to abandon the project. Right. The bottom line is you don't mess with uh, previous generations when it comes to mikvahs. <laughs> yeah, that was the Alter Rebbe Sheet. They haven't... Right. It's like the Chachamim or Metama, the Koyan Godel. Right. In other words, they dafka use the Kula of, 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 of the Ashoka Kula, the Chabad Mikvoyes. So That's a whole separate discussion. So in Washington, he was the uh, Rav of the Ear, very um, involved in all facets of life in town. He um, whipped the Shochdim into shape. He uh, gave Hayashkacha on wine. Um, he also, being World War II, had to deal with all of the issues of World War II. Um, I should have asked you to pull up the David Wyman. If anybody, if you want to have a second. Yes. If you can pull up the David Wyman um, the, Star, the Holocaust Studies website. Okay. So people have, heard of the rabbi, people have heard of the Rabbi's March of 1943? Yes. So in 1943, there was a march of Orthodox rabbis on Capitol Hill Actually, they wanted to go and speak to President Roosevelt, and there was a whole scandal that he David was... David Wyman, W... Wyman, W-Y-M-A-N. David Wyman Holocaust mm-hmm. Institute. And they ended up not getting to meet the, the president. Oh, they met the vice president, who gave a lot of half-hearted answers, mm-hmm. and they held a big rally on the steps of Capitol oh, Hill. It was the first orthodox response to the Holocaust at the time. This was held two days before Yom Kippur, and um, his house became Grand Central Station for all of the efforts in America to, of the film efforts at least, to help out Achenu B'nai Israel in Europe at the time. Um, not only did everybody come to him, but he frequently went with them to meet various politicians. Um, the story goes that he sewed his bus pass into the sleeve of his kapata. So that way, if he had to go to a meeting on Shabbos, at least his, uh, we would be able to take it out Vishinoi to minimize the Chilol Shabbos involved. Because, it wasn't, I mean, granted, it was Hatzalus Nefashis, but you still minimize the Chilol Shabbos whenever possible. Amr um, Cutler was a frequent visitor at his house during that period of time. Um, the reason I've mentioned the Wyman Holocaust Institute, oh, there we are. If you go to uh, resources, resources, um, no, sorry, um, publications, sorry, publications. No, we're special reports. Scroll down, oh, was that it? No, it's in back, sorry, back, um, it's not in resources. Look at the, um, no, go back up to uh, resources again. Yeah, it's resources, oh, sorry, encyclopedia. Uh, no, go back to encyclopedia, please. Yeah, right. Uh, no, uh, news. It's under um, No. Anyway, if you do a search for um, search for uh, that. Search for what? No, there's there's a whole section on the rabbi's march. Uh-huh. There's an entire section there. Probably go public, go back to publications, um, articles. No, it's there somewhere. No, on what? It's there. I saw it yesterday. Remember um, the rabbi's march. Yeah, uh, not the Bergson group. Yeah, the day the rabbis marched. There, go down, right there on the uh, documents. Go to documents, right second one there. down. There we go. Scroll down to documents. Um, 
go to yeah, go to the document section, part three. Yeah. Okay, scroll down another three pages down, three documents down. This is a partial list. Keep going, one more page. Stop. Um, one more. There it goes. Scroll down and stop. All right. Um, yeah. So this was one of the organizational letters sent out during the organization of the march. And as it says on the bottom, right there in the postscript, right there, perfect. At the bottom of that second, bottom of that bottom there, that page that you're on. On page two, scroll down to the bottom of that page. Anyway, oh, perfect. So scroll down, try to figure out, doing all of the planning right there. Just had the Secretary of General of the Union of Orthodox Rabbis in the office, and he told me that in the matter of food and rest for the rabbis is concerned, that you get in touch with Rabbi Jay Clavin, 476 F Street, <laughs> District 4337. That tells you all you need to know about where the center of Washington, D.C. was. Because it was a Shabbos march. Yeah. So it wasn't on Shabbos. It was two days. Phone number. For those, yes, back in the day, there were four area codes. There were letters on the phone dial. And the first three numbers of the first three numbers were actually done based so on a letter Rabbi code. Clay, your great-grandfather was the one who was going to be he was make great- sure that the Rabbonum that were coming in would be taken care of. Right. It was a Monday march. It was a Monday march. Ah, very good. <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't listening. Right. Anyway. Um, so just tells you something about him. One of the issues that he had, I mean, we'll get into the truth in another couple minutes, one of the issues that he had to deal with was um, all the war issues, and one of the issues primarily was how to deal with Agunas. Now, well, about 10 years ago, I stumbled across a fascinating article. There was an undergrad at Penn in 2007 by the name of Sarah Brager, who wrote a nice, beautiful uh, paper for as an undergrad and Mellon research fellow entitled Sentence to Marriage, Chained Women in Wartime. It was basically a history of get al Tanai for people going off to war, primarily focusing on the fact that the abstract says, quote, the Committee on Response of the Jewish Welfare Board, which actually was a board of rabbis of both Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform movements that actually worked together to deal with practical shilas for the military and the chaplains in the military and the fact that it actually survived during World War II and functioned relatively well is fascinating and that deserves a sharing of its own about the history of the whole uh, committee and the Jewish Welfare Board and the like. And my grandpa was involved with that. The fact that it existed at all was quite impressive. And it, there was a lot of difficult work that went into that to, to keep it uh, viable. It died out eventually by the time we, Vietnam had come to an end. Anyway, so she actually did a whole paper about Get Out Tonight, and when she did this in 2006 and 2007, she commented that she was doing it 10 years too late because there was nobody left around who could actually talk about it. She found the last living World War II chaplain from England who was actually uh, functional, and her mother happened to have been in England at the time, and she interrogated him. But she also could not find many copies of actual Gittin that were written out tonight. She did find one in uh, 2007 by a, for a war veteran living in Scranton, Ohio, that Scranton, Pennsylvania, signed in June 23, 1944, 
it's interesting that the family actually kept the get instead of destroying it because they viewed it as they made copies for their children and viewed it as a symbol of the love between uh, the, the husband and wife and uh, the affection for each other. The footnote there tells the whole story, and I'll read the footnote simply because it tells you all you need to know about this. In a conversation with Mrs. Mildred Harris, I learned that in summer 1944, her husband Sam, who was 22, had been waiting in a base outside Washington for orders to go to Europe with his infantry unit. They were from Scranton, were Orthodox, and been married a year. She was staying with her brother, a conservative rabbi in Washington. When her husband got his orders, it was her brother who strongly encouraged her husband to sign such a document for her protection. She recalled there had been a case of a woman in Scranton who had remained in Aguna from World War I, and she thinks this was a factor in their decision. Her brother recommended they go to Rabbi Joshua Clavin, an Orthodox rabbi in Washington, a renowned expert in Jewish law, to have the document drawn up. Rabbi Clavin did not use a printed form, but wrote the text out, on his own, out in his own Hebrew handwriting. Mr. Harris signed it and dated it in Hebrew and English. She did not remember where the document was for the duration of her husband's absence when he came back having been wounded in the Battle of the Bulge and hospitalized. He had not destroyed the document, but they had kept it through the years. I am grateful to Mr. and Mrs. Harris for sharing a copy of the conditional get with me, and also to Rabbi Hillel Clavin, son of Rabbi Joshua Clavin, himself a retired rabbi in Washington, for directing me to the Harris family. He had known about the form because he had once been shown it by Mr. Harris. These are issues that Baruch Hashem we really don't have to deal with anymore. But Agunas in wartime was a serious problem. It really traces itself back. I mean, yes, it's going from the Gemara. We still have to deal with it. On a practical level, it first became an issue in the late 1800s with the wars in Europe. World War I was an utter disaster. We don't realize the scale of the destruction between the nine million servicemen killed between the various powers. Millions of civilians were killed in Europe. You basically had the loss of an entire generation of young men. And Agunas were a serious problem. Baruch Hashem today, it's not as much of an issue on a wide scale, at least in military matters, as it is. And even today, the military in America doesn't really discuss Get Al Tanai in Israel. It's a whole other story. But... Uh, that's something you have to deal so, with. And, and, and the fact that your great-grandfather was doing it sounds like he was doing Baskamas, the was, other Rabbonim. Yeah, like this standard, is what it was This done. was a procedure, although they didn't do it with great fanfare, it was right. standard procedure for an American uh, Jewish soldier Heading to give a get-out tonight. Right, going overseas. Obviously, Kohanim had their own special issues, but uh, for non-Kohanim, that was done. For those who asked... This was done, and there was a, the article goes through the whole history of it. It's really deserving of its own special treatment. And while there's so much more to talk about, how we founded Yeshiva Space Yehuda, otherwise known today as the Melvin J. Berman Hebrew Academy of Greater Washington, um, that's been, that has educated many over the years. It was one of the first yeshivas outside of the New York City metropolitan area. One of the first, not the first, um, other than Cleveland and Baltimore. In Boston, it was uh, one of the probably right after that Jewish one of the first one of the first Jewish day schools. Day schools, and uh, it's interesting. How did one of the uh, most one of the most prominent teachers there in its early years had started out as a shochet, and uh, one day uh, my elder Zadie went to him and said, "Why are you dealing with Mason? Why don't you come deal with Chaim instead?" (laughs) Became a rebbe there in yeshiva and stayed for thirty years. Um, But dealing with uh, the topic, so we had, he had all these issues, and one of the issues that he had was just that there was a major who had expressed, in the U.S. Army, who had expressed his desire to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery, 
And unfortunately, Rachmanowitzan, he drowned, and uh, probably in the Pacific. And uh, the family, then uh, the, one of the other Rabbanim in town came to him to ask whether or not they should be allowed to listen to his request to be buried in Arlington. They found the body. They found the body. Oh, I mean, not every victim in uh, the Pacific, not every victim was lost at sea. They actually recovered many bodies. So wherever, either it was the Pacific or the Atlantic, we don't know the details. That was the question, and he said, "Look, I mean, many have been buried in Arlington without asking the Shiloh. So let's talk about the Shiloh here. So in order to talk about the Shiloh, you got to really take a step backwards." What's the mi- we have a mitzvah of kvura to bury a body. Where does that come from? Anyone? Kikavartik kvurenu bayom hahu. It's brought down as a mitzvah by Bezdin that those who are killed by Bez, executed by Bezdin, and have a strung up on a branch and then taken down and buried. And from there, the Gemara learns out that there's a chi of kvura for all Jews, not just Haruge Bezdin. So then you have to bury him. So where do you bury him? So then there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Gemara in Sanhedrin on, hey, uh, excuse me, on Memvav, Gemara on Memvav, right, so that on uh, Memvav on Mebez, he says that, uh, here we go, that's, um, Iboyeluhu, it's like seven wide lines down, Iboyeluhu, um, right there at the top, um, stop, seven wide lines down, okay, Iboyeluhu, Kvura Mishum Bizyona Hu Mishum Kapara, Actually, we back that up. That's really not the. Uh, that's real. That's uh, a separate piece. Let me back that up. You want to go down? Actually, um, yeah. Um, no, we'll start there. We'll okay, start boy, there. Boy, so uh, busy, right. So kvura. What's the point of kvura? Is it a kapara issue that burying is a kapara for the nifter or a bizayon issue? And the Gemara doesn't give a tarot. And the Gemara weaves it as Gemara as my nafkamina. He doesn't want to be buried. So if it's a one, if it's a kapara issue, you could say I don't want the kapara, so you would listen to him. But if it's a bizayon issue, lafko kamini to be mochon bizayon. What's going on? So there's actually so the, you don't have to, you don't have control of your own body to be right. Now this is actually a separate issue. I mean this gets part of it. There's really another piece here that um, I. Put up the uh, wrong piece, the wrong Gemara here. The halacha is that ain't cover in Russia is tzaddik. You don't put you don't put uh, two Jews of differing religious status next to each other in burial. That's this that's Gmar and Gittin. Okay, we got that here too. Yeah, Gmar and Gittin on Samach Aleph. Actually, that's that's not the Gmar and Gittin. It does I should have. Ah, here we are. It's on Samach Aleph. Back up. It's Sanhedrin and Zion and Aleph. Back here too. I think we kept. Yeah, we go right in the middle. That Bezdin had two different cemeteries for executions. You had one cemetery for those who were Skila and Srefa, and another for Herak and Chenek, because you don't put a Balayavera of different status next to each other. So the Gemara says, You don't bury a Russian next to a Tzadik. That is why it is very right over there. That is why you have all these different 
groups and cemetery groups and Landschaftsmen and organizations and there are many shuls have their own sections and the like to ensure that everybody's buried with appropriate people. I mean, our, just as an aside, I mean, the shul that I go to in Edison, New Jersey, they purchased uh, plots in the some local cemetery only to find out afterwards that due to the arrangement of the plots, only about 100 of them were actually usable because the people surrounding the cemetery, their area of the cemetery were basically uh, not from Jews, and that would be an issue of Kovrin Russia Tzadik, Granted, Russia is a relative term because, as we all know, Afilo Poshi Yisrael Malayim commits Karimon. Nevertheless, it's still an issue. So the Beis Yosef says that in Kovin Russia, it's a tzadik, kol shikain, akum. In kol shikain, you wouldn't bury a Jew next to a non-Jew. Now, this, uh, that's the Svara. Now, beyond that, you've got the Gemara and Gitin, which we'll throw up over there, that says that because of Darkei Shalom, Kovrim Mesei Akum and Mesei Yisrael. Now, all the Rishonim, the Rashi, the Ran, the Ritva, all say it doesn't mean Mamish with together, but rather you're Misasik Bahem and you bury them, but not together. Um, Here's the Gemara. Here's the Gemara over there. In Darkei Shalom. The Rambam leaves out the word in. And just as Ms. Askin behind the Kovra. Here's the Rashi. Rashi, right over there. Um, I got it. <coughs> right. Yisrael, not with them, but if you're there, Ms. Askin Harugim. You're allowed to help with you're allowed to help out with the burial because of Dark Shalom. So we don't bury Jews and non Jews together. Which leads to various problems and questions over the years. Um, if those who read the Mariam Kamas, there's a Chubas from right in the Malami Tahoel in there, there's a Munchazar about what type of separation do you need between the two. There's a Bach in uh, Yeridea Kufnon Aleph that says in time of war, when they fell together in battle, you can bury Jews and non-Jews together, B'chatzer Echad, the same Chatzer, and everybody points out, yes, with the appropriate Harchaka between the two sides, it does not mean buried together. Um, just as an aside, the Jewish Welfare Board actually relied upon that a misreading of that Ran to permit um, Jews and non-Jews to be buried together if they fell together in battle. Um, there's an interesting tshuva from Rav Lau Shrita that talks about this same topic, and he brings down a steer on the Ran problem with the Rambam, that the Rambam leaves out this issue over here, and Lamaisa Rav Lau comes to the conclusion that the two aspects to Kfura. One aspect of Kfura is the Mitzvah Daraisik Yikobotik Morenim. There's another aspect of Kfura of Bizayam that in order that the body should not be laid out as a bizayon, it's a bizayon to who? It's not only a bizayon to the nifter, but a bizayon to the family, and therefore you bury the body. What comes out according to that is that, well, what's the function of the Chavar Kadisha? The Chavar Kadisha's job is to bury. But effectively, whose responsibility is it for Klura? It's the Yorshim and the family. The Chavar Kadisha only, asks, only functions as a shliach of the family. So if the Shaver Kadisha doesn't want to do it or can't do it because it's Be'iser, then it's the family's responsibility. And if the family and the Nifter agree that it's not a Bizayon, then you don't have to do it. That's what Ravau comes out. In reality, that's really... Right, that's Ravau's true over there, Pei Hey. In reality, that's just Tesfis over there in Gittin, in Sanhedrin. Tesfis says that the Bizayan is not the Bizayan of the Nifter, but the Bizayan of the family. It's the Bizayan for the family to have the body sitting out and not buried. What comes out of that is that if it's not a Bizayan, 
then it should be mutter. So his psaq was, look, the guy had stated many times in writing, he wants to be read in Arlington National Cemetery. Arlington National Cemetery is the most chashuv military cemetery in the country. You can't call that bizayon at all. In contrast, it's buried with, you talk about buried with honors, that's what military, if anybody who's ever seen a military funeral, it's really, uh, I hate to call it a schmuck, but you really understand the term of burial with honors. You can't call that a bizayon. His psaq was that it was mutter. Now, if you would have asked him about burying in a non-Jewish cemetery, generally, he would have said no. Had he said, asked for a cemetery other than Arlington, it's questionable. At least in this case, he poskined yes. He then backtracked somewhat. This is a letter, the Tshuva in the Sefer is written to Ruderman. He was very close with Ruderman. Ruderman was younger, but he was the representative of the Baltimore community upon my, uh, the installation in Washington, and they hit it off. And he basically served as the assistant Rosh Hashiva in Yisrael from then on until the near his... his uh, Ruderman was the Rosh Hashiva, but Rav Klavan had was but, cons- was considered also connected to the Yeshiva. He frequently would come up, Rav Ruderman was either ill, which happens quite often, or fundraising. And would frequently, um, he would go up... What? Right. I thought Rabbi Neuberger did that, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Rav originally up front, he did a lot of fundraising too, Frequently, he would go up to give shear in Washington, and I was told by at least two different uh, in, in Baltimore. Right, in Baltimore, I was told by at least two different Muslim of the yeshiva who served as rabbanim in Baltimore, and these were the original talmidim there that uh, I also say to gave a better shear. <laughs> anyway, so the tshuva was sent that to Ravurdiman <laughs> just to get Ravurdiman's haskama, but really his issue was maybe there's another issue. Maybe there's actually a halacha moshim a real din deraisa about not burying a Jew next to a non-Jew. Um, that's actually based on a Rashi here in Sanhedrin. The whole din of Enkor from Rosh Yitzhak Tzadik, according to Rashi, is Halacha Moshe Misinai. The Gemara says Halacha Moshe Misinai, and Rashi therefore takes it to mean it's a din raisa. It's not that the other Rishonim do not necessarily agree with that position, but there is a point to be said, and it's something to think about. Well, I say you don't go about this issue rightly. In Eretz Yisrael, Revlau, based upon this reasoning, Paskin, that unfortunately you have a scenario that we have many uh, Israeli citizens of Russian descent who are of questionable Jewish uh, Jewish background, or halachic, shall we say, questionable Jewish halachic status. And if somebody... And these wives want to be buried next to their husbands who are... Who are, who are who are real who are Jews. Real Jewish, where do you bury them? So the wife is buried in a separate cemetery, but can the Jewish spouse be buried next to the non-Jewish or questionable Jewish spouse? And his psalmite was yes, but only if the non only if the Jewish spouse gives his assent in writing beforehand and the family agree, with the caveat the family has to be the Jewish family and not the non-Jewish family. So it, did Ravlau see your grand, great-grandfather's chuba? Does he mention it? Or is it he doesn't not? mention it. Uh-huh. But um, they're, uh, they're stepping, they're, but they're pretty much in the same line. Yeah, yeah, so from the, 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 the former chief rabbi of Washington and the former chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, their minds meet in some way, in that way. Now there's a lot more that can be talked about uh, my great-grandfather Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.